Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in your incredible love for us, you did send Jesus from your very heart for us. And we just ask that this evening as we've gathered here to reflect and explore together, um, we just ask that you would hold us close to your heart. Take us the places that are important for us, the places that you want by your Holy Spirit. Guide our thoughts and meet us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come with me to a third grade classroom. There's a nine-year-old kid sitting at his desk when all of a sudden there's a puddle between his feet and the front of his pants are wet. He thinks his heart's going to stop because he can't possibly imagine how this has happened. It's never happened before. And he knows that when the boys find out, he'll never hear the end of it. And when the girls hear about it, they'll never speak to him again as long as he lives. He thinks his heart is going to stop and he puts his head down and he prays this prayer. Dear God, this is an emergency. I need help now. Five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. He looks up from his prayer, and here comes the teacher with a look in her eyes that says he's been discovered. As the teacher is walking toward him, a classmate named Susie is carrying a goldfish bowl that is filled with water. Susie trips in front of the teacher and inexplicably dumps the bowl of water in the boy's lap. The boy pretends to be angry, but all the while he's saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And now all of a sudden, instead of being the object of ridicule, he's the object of sympathy. The teacher rushes him downstairs and gives him a pair of gym shorts to put on while his pants dry out. And all the other children are on their hands and knees cleaning up around his desk. And the sympathy is wonderful. But as life would have it, the ridicule that should have been his has now been transferred to someone else, to Susie. She tries to help, but they tell her to get out. You've done enough already, you klutz. Finally, at the end of the day, as they're waiting for the bus, the boy walks over to Susie and whispers, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And Susie whispers back, I wet my pants once too. You know, I think you and I are oftentimes surrounded by opportunities to carry other people's pain. And I suspect, for me at least, that I don't always, I don't always see it. I'm not always aware of it. And my prayer is that God will teach you and me to Somehow sharpen our focus, our vision, so that, so that we can see what's happening and be alert and catch those places where we can walk with others in their pain. I told you yesterday that at the beginning of our time together that there would be opportunity for you to connect some dots and just reflect on what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in our sessions yesterday. And remember the phrase, there is liberty. So what what has God been saying to you yesterday? Anything particular? Anything that sort of caught you in a new way or was put in a framework for you that you hadn't quite gotten it that way before or whatever? Maybe something that happened today that God brought to your mind. Anyone? Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't know if you could hear that in the back, but just the idea that Satan tricks you and me into believing that the battle is here or with God rather than with himself. And we need to keep that in focus. And remember that it's we have a vicious enemy who will take us out if we're not alert. Anyone else? Are you okay with where we started yesterday? Is this sort of seem like we're on target? Okay. 
You can do this if it's okay and this if it's not okay. All righty. We're looking at relationships with God, with each other, and with ourselves. And simply looking at the ways that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he doesn't, he doesn't really care how he does that. He'll start, like I shared, I, I, my sense is that he, he'll start at conception to begin to set you and me up for failure in relationships because of patterns, ways of thinking, and ways of, of perceiving uh, that we may not even be aware of, the things that happen even in the womb we talked about. Those kinds of things can happen. This evening, I'd like to take the risk of getting real personal and simply sharing with you um, our journey and some of the places that we've been. And not that, not that you should compare your journey to ours, only except in those places where you would say, wow, I understand um, because my experiences parallel or they, they intersect in ways. There are some common denominators. Um, but hopefully out of, out of our journey, the Holy Spirit will be able to connect some dots for you and maybe some things will begin to come together for you. Um, I grew up in a pastor's family. Um, and so from little up, as far back as I can remember, absorbed all the right stuff, all the good stuff through my pores, wonderful godly parents, lots of Bible stories, Sunday school, Bible school, um, Bible memory, programs that our, our parents had us do, that, that kind of thing. Well, I'd have to also admit that I absorbed a fair bit through the seat of my pants uh, along the way. Uh, not that I needed it, but, uh, well, we won't go there. I think it'd be a good idea for you to come and stand with me. I need, yeah, I need some support. As far back as I can remember, I always struggled with, with um, I guess I would just call it sensuality, uh, with a, a strong sensual kind of focus. Um, life seemed to, for me, seemed to be largely uh, sexual in orientation. Uh, can remember as a, as a little guy growing up in southeastern Kentucky, we would travel... Um, every summer we would go to Virginia, spend some time with my dad's relatives there, and then on to Delaware and spend time with um, my mom's side of the family. And, um, and I can remember playing doctor uh, with several of my cousins, probably even preschool. Remember in grade school, I think every year, every year going, um, having some kind of sort of emotional connection with someone and um, being focused in that way, writing notes and so on. Got into high school uh, as I was um, becoming an adolescent and as the hormones kicked in, uh, similar kinds of feelings and fantasies and lust and living at times in sort of a dream world and and despairing at times of ever, ever reaching marriage with any measure of, of purity. Um, we moved into central Ohio when I was, um, soon after I was out of high school, um, started um, college at OSU. And uh, in that kind of setting, for those of you that have ever spent any time there, you know that it's, it's anything but um, godly. And um, in, in a number of courses that I took, we were assigned reading materials that was pornographic. We watched video clips that was at least soft porn, if not hardcore. 
Uh, and that, for me, only only fueled the fire and and put me on a more sort of obsessive journey, I would say. During those years, I thought, you know, if I could just if I could just get married, if I could just find a wife, that would solve all of my problems. I went to um, Northwestern Ontario in VS, um, and um, my parents took me, drove me up to Hartville, and we and I overnighted with a young Amish Mennonite couple that was driving to Red Lake. We got into got into Red Lake on a on a Saturday evening, Labor Day weekend it was, and. Um, I jumped out of the car. For any of you that have, that were ever visited Red Lake back in the day, um, there was this huge three-story building right on the lakefront. The the lower level was was lake level, uh, and dock right outside the office windows and float planes tied up right there at the dock. On street level was um, a chapel, cafe, uh, dining room, living room, kitchen for the director of the mission and for the single staff that lived there. Upstairs, he and his wife had an apartment, and there were rooms along the hall for single staff. And I jumped out, ran up, and knocked on the door, and a a VS girl came to the door who looked like she had lost her very last friend. Um, I wondered if maybe she'd been to the funeral of her best friend that day or something. And she didn't say much she said, I'll put some soup on for you. And so we all ran in, sat at the table. And she put a bowl of soup on the table and, and a plate of bread, as I recall. And then she disappeared upstairs. Nobody else around. And we sat there and, and ate supper together and then uh, sat and twiddled our thumbs. And I could hear people moving around upstairs, but nobody came around. Um, and we waited for a while, and eventually she showed up again, and she said, you're going to be staying upstairs. Um, there's a bedroom upstairs for you. This, this young couple uh, will be going up the hill to the guest house, the mission guest house. So I grabbed my suitcase and a box, whatever I had, and, and um, she showed me to my bedroom, and I unpacked into the, <clears throat> into the uh, dresser there, and Every so so often I would I would pull open my my door and I would look up and down the hall to see if I couldn't catch somebody out in the hall and I'd I'd hear people moving around but I never I never saw anyone and nobody ever came by and I can remember sitting on my bed and thinking you idiot what in the world have you gotten yourself into this this is going to be the longest Two years of your life and uh, went to bed early as I recall and figured tomorrow's Sunday and I'll go to church somewhere and but nobody had said anything at all I mean she was the only person that that I had seen up to that point and my assumption was that that was likely the tone or the atmosphere of this particular place Next morning, I got up and, and um, went down the hall to, to the washroom in Canada. Uh, it's washrooms, not restrooms or bathrooms. And I came out, and as I, as I came out the door, I heard these heels coming down the hall. And I looked up, and I saw the most beautiful woman that I had ever seen in my life. Drop-dead gorgeous. And I can still remember thinking, just like it was yesterday, this may not be so bad after all. <laughs> and um, so here we are. She's secretary for the director of the mission, working in the same office down on lakefront that I am. We eat three meals a day across the table from each other. On Sunday, we drive 50 miles down the road to a little mission Sunday school, um, we end up being put on a Sunday evening youth committee of some kind to plan programs. And we're spending all kinds of time together and didn't have to date. 
you have to understand this. We were living together, but not that way. Well, after two months, uh, the mission director and his wife, had, they went on a six-week deputation PR trip. And when they came back, somebody reported to him what was happening, that we, were, we sort of had our eyes on each other. And, and they developed this desperate need for a single guy 80 miles north at Poplar Hill School. And they picked me. And I knew why they picked me. And so anyway, they, I, I went to Poplar Hill for the rest of the year. Marilyn came back to, to Dalton in the spring. She was there for a year. I finished out my two years. When she left, by the way, she said, let's call this off. Um, she'd heard these horror stories of people getting together on the mission field, you know, and sort of being thrown together and it not being really an ideal kind of marriage. Um, and so she dropped me, put me on the shelf. Was that what it was? Um, I came home after two years of VS, and uh, we bumped into each other again and began dating and got married and ended up back in Canada um, as missionaries. What I discovered was that being married didn't solve my problems because it was a heart issue for me that I didn't understand. And I don't know if we'll have time to unwrap that, but um, Marilyn couldn't fix for me a problem in my heart that I didn't even know existed. She was a wonderful, godly wife and did everything in her power to be the woman that, that God wanted her to be and the woman that I needed. But I continued a roller coaster ride of failure and of shame. Um, I'd find myself with some trashy magazine um, on a business trip uh, or a video or at some bookstore that I should never have been. And I would hate myself for, for failing. I'd find someone uh, to confess that to and to repent and cry out to God and, and beg him for victory. And I would determine that this time it's going to be different. And it would be for a time, maybe uh, a year, maybe two years or longer. Um, but then it seemed like inevitably, without fail, I'd be face down in the mud again, just hating myself, despising my weakness and feeling like it was helpless. Um, and so that was, that was the story of our marriage. There were ways that I, um, I would talk to Marilyn about parts of that. Uh, she knew the struggle, but she didn't know the extent of it. We could talk about everything under the sun, um, about raising our four children. We could talk about discipling new believers on an Indian reserve where we lived. We even became a presenting couple in marriage encounter for about five years. And we would do three or four weekends a year as a presenting couple. And we could talk about marriage. And there were ways that we could talk about the surface parts of our marriage. But it always felt to me like we could never, we couldn't get real deep when when we would try to go deep, it was like um, there was a glass wall between us or something. Um, and so 30 years in, I was feeling increasingly hopeless and helpless. Uh, I was on the edge of burnout. We'd been in, in northwestern Ontario for 10 years, that particular stint, um, we had planned taking a sabbatical after seven, and then things were sort of um, awkward, and so the board asked us to stay another year and another year and another year, and things weren't getting any better. There were days when I was suicidal, when I knew, I knew that Marilyn and the kids would be better off if I were just out of the picture. Um, and in my, in my despair... I planned out a perfect accident 
so that no one would have ever known that it was anything other than an accident. But God protected me, and um, I know that there were people who were praying, but it felt like it felt like there was nobody around who, who could somehow find us or that we could connect with. So we ended up taking a sabbatical after 10 years, spent a year in, in Oregon, uh, moved back to Ohio, and in the process connected, a man shared with me his story and his connection with this pastor who, who did marriage counseling. And I came home and told Marilyn, I said, we're going to go see him. She didn't argue. Um, I think she'd have been ready for anything at that point. Uh, we had tried during that sabbatical year. We'd gone to marriage seminars to some of Gary Smalley's stuff and had done getaways and had begun talking. And, but it felt like there were just issues. There were things that we couldn't figure out. Or maybe it was just that I was getting to a point finally where I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And I knew that I needed someone to help us work it out. So um, 11 years ago this summer, we were on our way driving west uh, to Colorado Springs. And I'm desperate. I'm, I'm just begging God. I'm saying, Lord, I don't care who knows what. I don't care what it takes. I need a revival. I need, I need you to meet me somehow. And help me understand, uh, because we would talk, we would cry together, pray together, and, and, and go away and feel like it was hopeless, like it was over. And I think we both knew that if, if God was who he said he was, then there had to be answers somehow, but we certainly weren't finding them. And so we're, we're driving to Colorado springs and i'm i'm just begging god for whatever it takes is that a good place is your as we were traveling as we were traveling west um well you heard don's story um it was obvious he had problems and i knew that and i wanted him to get help i i really wanted him to get help and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what my role is going to be in this, but I want to help him as much as I can. I'm not sure what I need. And as I went back over my life over the last 30 years, I was thinking, I, I, knew, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I knew that my mother had struggled with some anger issues, and that had been probably 15 years before that that I had dealt with some of those issues and had really found freedom and was not feeling um, the explosive anger that I used to feel. And I had dealt with some generational things. And, and so I'm thinking, well, I know it's not my mom, and I'm pretty sure it's not my dad because my father was a very um, quiet, gentle man. And I'm thinking about him, and I'm thinking, I never had any issues with him. And so I'm just praying, and I'm saying, Lord, what, what do you want to teach me? I want to learn whatever you want to teach me in this week. But I didn't know what that might be. And so, but I, my heart was open. I felt like I was ready to, to learn whatever the Lord wanted to teach me. So we, we get to Colorado, and um, we walk into the pastor's office, and and it was real easy for Don to just kind of lay everything on the table and say, you know, this is why I'm here. And the pastor looked at me and he said, and, and you know, he wanted to know why I was there. Well, I'm here to support him <laughs> and uh, to learn whatever I need to learn. And so he began asking me a lot of questions. This was on Monday. and Tuesday. Wednesday. Tuesday, Wednesday. And I'm saying, I am not going home until you get him fixed. And um, I didn't know if it was going to happen. But anyway, as he was talking to me and as he was asking me questions, you know, I kind of expected him to take me back to my childhood and ask all kinds of questions back there. And I grew up in a normal home, and you probably did too. Uh, most of us have until we begin to look at what our normal home really was. And... Uh, so 
I, you know, I shared as openly as I could with him and, and actually felt like he was struggling a bit to find anything. Uh, but at one point, he asked me if, if I had had any painful experiences, and I said, I don't think so. Uh, I, I really didn't think there was anything there. And he said, well, you know, he said, I don't know either. I thought, well, I didn't think he did. Uh, but he said, you know, I know someone who does know. And he said, why don't we just ask Jesus if there was anything? And I said, well, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm ready to do that. But I, I don't know if I'm going to hear from Jesus. How am I going to hear from Jesus? Do you all hear from Jesus? I'm going, um, what's he going to say to me? Is he actually going to say something to me if we ask him? And he, he said, well, he said, I generally tell people, you know, when I lead them in a prayer, I just generally tell them that, you know, we're going to ask God to bring any memories back that might be important. And um, I said, well, I'm good with that. Um, and I said, I'm willing to share those memories with you, you know, if they mean anything. And so he led me in a prayer, and it was just very profound how... There were two distinct memories that came to me, which I really didn't expect that to happen, but it did. But I didn't understand what they meant. And the one thing that, the one memory that came to me was a simple phrase from guess who? My dad. And it was, it was just simply this phrase, Marilyn, Marilyn, be quiet. And I'm going, what in the world does that mean? I have, I have a twin sister. And she was very shy. When, when we were growing up, she was very shy. But I was not as shy as she was. <laughs> I don't know if I was quite that bad. But um, anyway, um, I said, I really don't know what that means. And we had talked a bit about our relationship and how I had struggled at times and would, um, when Dawn would get rather gruff and, and um, be rather forceful, uh, with his words, I would just lock up, and I would just kind of go away for a couple days. It was safer to do that, and but I didn't really understand why I did it, and so when I shared the Marilyn Marilyn phrase with the pastor, he said, he said, did that sound at all like, when, when Don would do that to me, he said, did that feel or sound at all like your dad, and I said, as I thought about it, I said, yeah, I said, it was very much like that, and he said, well, he said, that's very easy. He said, we can, we can work on that. He said, the next time that you feel that way, the next time Don locks you up, he said, just simply look at him and say, you know, honey, that felt like a Marilyn Marilyn. And I thought, well, that seems really simple. I think I can do that. And um, so um, after we left and went home, we were asked to share in Sunday school with several couples that wanted to go through the video series. And I, I just, we had, it had probably been six weeks, maybe a couple months before we did that. And we really were on a honeymoon when we left there. We just, life had just changed so drastically for us. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm sure that the next, if the, if the time ever comes that I need to say that, I can say that it will be a real easy thing to do. Well, we were helping, we were, teaching the Sunday school class, and we were watching the video series, and one morning after the video series, after the video was finished, we were discussing it, and I had made a comment, and Don said after I made the comment, he just simply said, yes, but, and then he proceeded to give his idea about Clarify. what was going on in the video, and I, you know, I immediately, I just locked up, and then I began talking to myself you need to tell him that was a Marilyn Marilyn. Well, I wasn't going to do it there in class. So I thought, okay, well, I can do it after church. No, I don't think I will. And this argument went on in my heart all morning. Well, on the way home, I knew that I had made a commitment to myself that I would say something to him on the way home. So on the way home, probably about halfway, I finally just blurted it out. I said, honey, there's something I need to say to you. He said, sure, what's that? Very, you know, very kind, and I'm going... He doesn't get it. He really doesn't. And so I just blurted it out. I didn't look at him. I didn't want to see his expression. I didn't want to see his reaction because I didn't know what the reaction was going to be. I was expecting a bit of an explosion, but I didn't know. And so I shared with him what had happened. And it was silent over there. And, I'm, and I still wasn't looking at him. And, but I waited 
because I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And finally, I looked over at him, and the tears were streaming down his cheeks. And I said, oh, honey, I'm sorry. What have I done? I, I didn't mean to hurt you. He said, no, no, no. He said, you don't understand. He said, for 30 years, I've been trying to see your heart. I've been trying to go there. I've been trying to get into your heart. And he said, you haven't let me in. And he said, you have just shown me your heart. He said, thank you. At that moment, I realized that he was a safe place. I didn't, hadn't realized that he wasn't a safe place, but had come to that conclusion that he really wasn't. That's why my heart was locking. And so at that point, I knew that if there ever was another Marilyn Marilyn, I knew he would be a safe place for me to go to. That was the only one that we ever had, wasn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> We've had a few since then, but not very many. Uh, probably in the last, it's almost 11 years now, uh, maybe six, maybe seven. Uh, but he's been a very safe place for me to go to. And, and there hasn't been one time. There, there was one time I was afraid he wasn't going to respond correctly. Um, we were getting ready to go um, on a trip similar to this. Um, and I was cooking in the kitchen, and he was over in the dining room getting some papers together, getting ready to pack up to leave. And, and he made a comment. And I, I just felt my heart lock. And, but, you know, ladies, it was just a small thing. It wasn't very big. I'm sure you've probably experienced that. And you're not quite sure what you're supposed to do with it. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I need to say anything. And then I thought, you know... I believe the enemy wants to get his foot in the door, and he wants to destroy our time away and our, just, our time of ministry. And so I just said, you know, honey, that was a Marilyn, Marilyn. And it was really quiet over at the table for... Just a second. No, it was like at least a half a minute, I think. And I'm going, oh, this maybe is one of those times where he's not going to be able to come back. But it wasn't long until he dropped his papers, and he came over to the stove, and he put his arm around me, and he said, I'm sorry. He said, I don't know what I said. What did I say? And so I explained to him what he had said and, and what had happened. But I also explained to him that it really was a molehill. It was not a mountain. But I feared that it would grow into a mountain, and that was what I didn't want. And um, it wasn't really a big thing. But I think, I think it helped me to understand the importance of keeping my communication open with him. Uh, not that it was a really big thing, but I think a lot of times... If we don't share what's going on in our hearts, things can grow. They can get really big. And before we know it, we either blow up or we go and hide or whatever, however we react. And that's not what God has planned for us. He wants us to have open communication. And I was so grateful that day that he was able to come and, and understand my heart and what was going on. And God did honor that that time away that we had, and, and I believe it was important that that I let him know what was going on. And I, I need to confess to you that I was, like she said, innocently getting ready to leave, and I'm sure in my wonderfully warm, soft, sensitive way, I said something that should not have in any way offended her or felt unsafe. Um, and so you, you understand that this is really not my fault, nothing to do with me. You're going to take his side? Um, and in that moment, you know, in my flesh, what I wanted to say was something kind and gentle like, Doug, get over it. And yet the Holy Spirit caught me and... A half a minute, I think, is way too long. But anyway, I did, with God's help, not respond in my flesh because I knew that the last thing I wanted to do was to go back to what we had experienced for so long, <clears throat> where it felt like there wasn't the kind of transparency or nakedness of Eden emotionally that we had been living for six or eight, well, by that time, perhaps a year or so. If you would have asked me sometime prior to that, 
if I was safe for her, I would have, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten it. It wouldn't have made any sense to me because I, I never, I never hit her. I didn't yell at her. I didn't scream. I mean, what, what's with the safe thing? Of course I'm safe. Her. <laughs> and yet, and yet I wasn't for her. And what we began to understand was that I just, I picked up where Pop left off. And I never said Marilyn, Marilyn, but my tone of voice said that to her. And it's what it felt like to her. The other part of this is that in Marilyn's family, um, there, was a, there was a unique kind of, uh, what, a, a unique kind of training to avoid emotion and to, and to not express any emotion or really to sort of just bury the feelings. And so um, what I was doing was, was just blindly continuing that kind of sort of stuffing the feelings. And I, on one hand, I was saying, tell me what's happening. Talk to me. And the other side of my mouth, I was saying things harshly and unkindly, which said, you're not safe. Yeah, talk about your dad a bit more. <clears throat> one of the things that I, I told the pastor when I during the course of conversation there with him, was, I don't cry. He said, I'll get you crying. <laughs> and I thought, no, nah, I don't really think you will. Well, and I didn't really understand that. And, and, the, and then when this came out, I also realized that, you know, it was hard for me to express my emotions. And sometime, I think it was after we had been out there, we were talking about my father and... and some of his upbringing. When he was 10 years old, he lost his mother. She, she passed away during the night during childbirth. And that morning, um, when he and his brothers came down the stairs, um, and I, I had never heard this until my father was on his deathbed and our daughter was caring for him, he shared with her one evening that, this story. And uh, it really helped me to understand myself a little bit better. But he... He said when they came down the steps that morning, um, they met their father at the, at the bottom of the steps, and he told them that, that Mama had gone to be with Jesus during the night, and um, that a baby had been born, and the baby had died, and the mother had died as well. And he said they began to cry, and his father shushed him down and said, Don't cry. They've gone, they've gone to be with Jesus, so you don't need to cry. And they were not allowed to cry. As my father shared that story with our daughter at the age of 85, the tears just rolled down his cheeks, and he finally was able to grieve his own mother's death many years later. And as I thought about that and as I thought of my own upbringing, I remembered many times that when we were disciplined or or if we would cry about something, we were shushed down and we were not permitted to cry. So I began to understand why I didn't have tears and why, why I couldn't feel the emotions. When, when I married Don, his family's a very emotional family. And we would get together for a family get-together and we'd be sitting around in a, in a circle sharing. And they'd pass the Kleenex box around the circle and I'm going, what's the deal? It wasn't that bad. <laughs> well, it was. <laughs> And, you know, and, and I, everybody was crying, and I'm thinking, well, I don't really know why you're crying. It doesn't seem like anything real sad. But I began to understand why I didn't really feel emotional. But I'm so thankful. The Lord is giving me tears, and he's helping, to, helping me to feel emotional and helping me to find um, healing from it's kind of an interesting kind of pain, but it's, uh, it's really been good for me to be able to uh, expressed emotion, express um, tears and, and sadness in that kind of way. If you get me offline, I'll tell you some stories about how this little Whistler girl has come alive. <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that I learned about what I brought to our marriage was that even though I'm doing everything in my power to love Marilyn and, and to 
cherish her. If my heart is drawn away in fantasy or in lust, she may know absolutely nothing about that, but she will only feel like she's just getting a little bit of whatever dribbles across the wall. And she'll never ever feel loved and cherished. Because one of the ways uh, that God works, let's run to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll show us how he works so that we can live the way we're made. One of the ways that God works is apart from himself or after relationship with the Father. He designed you and me for one one focus point, if you will, of emotional connection. Uh, and that's, that's with a spouse. And if I'm drawn away, then Marilyn won't feel it. If Marilyn's lost in a, in a world of romance novels or soap operas, it will be the same thing, the same will be true coming this way. <clears throat> but as we talked um, different times in the first part of the week while the pastor was was um, exploring with Marilyn, he would sometimes sort of come back to me and he would say, so tell me where this started for you, this journey of, of sensuality. Um, and I would say, I, I don't know, as far back as I can remember. And he would say, um, well, I, th I think typically that there's some kind of trigger point or a door point or a beginning where the enemy gets his foot in the door and begin and starts a person on that kind of journey. What was it for you? Uh, and I said, I, I don't know. And like with Marilyn, he would say, well, Jesus knows. And if it's important, he can show you. And if not, it's all right. Uh, and I wondered about that. And um, we were... We were staying in a, in a sort of a quadrangle of apartments uh, in July in Colorado Springs, 7,000 feet, whatever, elevation, and blue, blue sky right here, dry and hotter than blazes. And right in the middle of that complex was a little pool with a high hedge around it. Wednesday, um, as we were driving back from the office, I said to Marilyn, I said, let's... Let's go enjoy the pool. I'm not all that hungry. And she agreed. So we ran into the apartment, changed, headed out to the pool. Midday, 1, 1.30. Nobody else around. It was just the two of us there. And I remember laying down on one of those lounge chairs just flat out in the sun. And it was like, you know, just perfect. I, I thought, man, I was born for this. And I hadn't much more than gotten comfortable Till I heard Marilyn say, um, are you ready to go to Jesus with me? And I said, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Just about that flippantly. And she said, all right, pray with me. And she began leading me in a prayer in the same way that the pastor had been praying with her those first several days. And, the, and her opening line was something like, it was simple. Like, uh, Jesus, can I come to you this afternoon? And I prayed that pretty casually, but meaning it. And in that moment, it was like everything else just sort of faded from perspective. And it was like it was just me and Jesus. I'd never, ever been anywhere like that before. And it was, I couldn't see him. I, I mean, it was like a form there, as I recall, but... And it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been because that's the way it seemed in my head. And um, Marilyn can be, when she gets on a roll, there's not much slowing her down. And she said, well, Jesus, was it true that there was something that happened in my life that started me on this journey of sensuality? And I repeated after her and and, and it was like just as clear as crystal, Jesus said, yes, there was. And um, I would feed back to her what I was sensing and hearing. And she said, well, would you tell us what that was? And he said, yes. He said, um, and I grew up in southeastern Kentucky, and we always had a couple of VS girls living with us. 
Um, and one, in the early days, in the first months that we were there, and no indoor plumbing, just a path to an outhouse in the back. And this, this was the sort of the word. Um, it all began when one of the VS gals exposed herself to you in the outhouse. And I thought, wait a minute. This is weird. This is crazy. I don't know about you. I don't know if you ever heard of, heard the term false memory syndrome or not. But when we were in Canada, it was a big, big controversy. And the whole idea was that depending on how a social worker or an investigator asks questions to a child particularly, that you can put memories or thoughts into a person's mind. And it was a big ruckus in the in a number of the Canadian universities, arguments, debates about whether this was possible. And, and um, you know, there were cases where um, a child had accused a parent of sexual abuse and they had done all of the investigation and they said, no, it, it can't have happened that way. And people were saying, but here's a victim and you're going to let the perpetrator off the hook and others were saying, but wait a minute, you can't blame someone if it's not true. And it, and it was just a big deal. And, and here I am sort of these thoughts swirling in my head and I'm thinking, uh, this is crazy. Um, I remembered, I had memories of situation, but not that specific event. And so I'm, I'm saying this, how do I know this isn't the enemy? feeding thoughts into my mind. And I just sort of forgot Marilyn at a moment for a moment. I said, Jesus, I've been talking to you. And I just need to know if this is really you. Um, I, I'm talking to Jesus, the Son of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I forget what all I wove into that. But I said, is this really you? And I'll never forget. It was like he was standing right in front of me and he just held out his hands and, and showed me the the scars. And he said, yeah, it's me. It's okay. And um, then at a certain point, uh, I don't remember, there might have been a few other things in there, but Marilyn asked the question, led me again, and, well, Jesus, will I be able to forgive her for starting me on that journey? And Jesus said something like, yeah, you will, but you've taken this about far enough today. Let the pastor help you sort it out tomorrow. <laughs> I busted out laughing because I thought, Jesus doesn't talk like that. Um, so anyway, we went in the next morning and just shared that with the pastor. And he said, well, he said, you've probably saved us a day or two of, of work. He said a couple things. He said, I, I don't know that you need to put a ton of stock or build any theology on this kind of experience. He said, I think what God wanted you to know was that, yes, there was something happened that started you on that journey. <clears throat> and so then he walked me through a cleansing process, and I sat and wrote everything that the Holy Spirit brought to my mind, every point of failure, and confessed it and renounced it and and begged the Lord to cleanse me and, and um, break the chains around my heart that the enemy had, had put there. And um, I never felt so free in all of my, whatever, 40, 50 years of my life up to that point. What I know now is that there was a way that the enemy got his foot in the door in my heart. And began building a stronghold, if you will, in the way I thought, in the way I processed. And I agreed with it in, in my curiosity and in, in my lust. And it just, it became a fortress. And the Holy Spirit came and began to demolish that for me. What I know, know today is that I'm a normal man. And all it would take would be for me to give in to lust. Again, and the enemy would begin to take me right back into bondage. But it's not the same kind of helpless or hopeless, um, what, sort of out of control 
or obsessive kind of feeling that I lived with for so long. And I, I'm just convinced that, that the enemy, the enemy had me uh, tied in knots uh, in with whatever those spirits of lust were that, that held me hostage. Um, like Marilyn said, we did, we did start a honeymoon um, 11 years ago almost. And um, we, I don't think we have ever looked back. We didn't get it all figured out. And there are still ways, there are still things that, <clears throat> that the enemy will try to throw up between us um, and get us and, and get started building that wall again so that I'm not safe um, or I don't, I don't treat her the way God wants me to. Um, and, and yet we've found, we've found keys, if you will, understanding how to deal with those things that come up. Um, the other morning we sat at the breakfast table for an hour and a half, and I, I can't remember now what it was. Oh, the muskrat. Uh, probably shouldn't go there. Yeah, we, we had had a conversation, and, and I had sort of tried to be, on, to be real with her, but I hadn't quite got there. Uh, to let her know what I was thinking and feeling, and she had made a decision which to me felt horribly disrespectful. And now what am I going to do with that? I'm, I'm, I'm tending to blame her when I know that's not in her heart because she had asked me what I felt. And anyway, it was one of those things where, where the enemy would just love to, to divide, to separate our spirits. And, and to get us going two different directions. Um, another time we were visiting our future son-in-law's parents in Georgia. We were leaving, <clears throat> I think maybe on a Monday or Tuesday morning to drive back to Ohio. And she said something to me. I don't have no idea what it was, but it just sounded really sort of nasty and cutting. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, what did I do to deserve that? Or to did I say something that caught her sideways? Am I part of that? And we drove out of Georgia. We drove up into South Carolina. We drove three hours. I hate to admit it, but we drove three hours before I finally got up courage to figure out. And I was, I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, I, I don't want to be defensive. I don't want to attack her. I don't want to be unkind, but I feel Something nasty in my spirit here. I feel horribly rejected and disrespected. And I finally, after three hours, I don't know why it took me so long. I think I'm a real man. Uh, I finally said something. I said, and I tried, I, I was determined I wanted it to be gentle. And I said something like, um, can you can you help me understand? Did I do something or say something that caused you to react to me the way you did? And I looked over, and, the, and now the tears are running down her cheeks, and she's kicking herself. She said, "No, you didn't say anything. I was just being a grouch." <laughs> but however those things happen, whatever the ways are that the enemy comes. His goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He'll destroy. We're not perfectly at Eden, but we're headed that direction, and we want to get as close to Eden as we possibly can. Sometimes I think it's really not even about us. It's about Jesus and us collectively as the bride and, and the picture that you and I in our marriages give to the world of who Jesus is. Because he says, husbands do what? Love your wives like Jesus loves the church and laid down his life for you and me. And um, I'll be learning that the rest of my life because <clears throat> I like to be served. <clears throat> um, that business of laying down your life doesn't come real easy for me. So in a nutshell... 
how do we process through what we learned? Well, number one, we, we both came to marriage with a fair bit of pain. Not harsh, abusive pain, but just those little itty-bitty things that our parents tried hard to, to do the very best that they possibly could. And yet, it was the little things here and there that they missed in terms of growing us emotionally. So we, we came to each other broken and wanting to have the best marriage on the planet, to be the best parents and best missionaries we possibly could, only to discover that there was so much that we didn't get, that we didn't understand. And so for me, I think where Jesus took me in, in my journey of understanding with Marilyn was uh, I, I didn't have a clue how, how strongly she had been trained and programmed to close her heart and to guard her heart and to not, to not feel, to not be free to express herself emotionally. And I tried for 30 years to get there. And at the same time I was trying, I was saying and doing things that caused her to sort of go inside and pull the door shut on her heart and sort of smile and be a good wife, but it was like she wasn't there. So what do I do with that? You know, it really, in the final analysis, it doesn't matter because I stood in front of God and these witnesses and I vowed to love and cherish her. It, there was no clause in there that said, uh, only if she's put together well and she's mature emotionally and her heart's not closed. But it was period. And so my, where God took me was to work hard at understanding who she became as a girl and how she was shaped and molded and, and defined and then just love her and, and be the man that God wants me to be. Um, and so we talk about, we talk candidly about the blind spots and those flaws, the places of weakness. Um, and we keep growing together and try hard not to blame each other for the dumb things that we do from time to time. Anything else that you wanted to? I don't know how any of this may connect with you. It's, it's time to close. What I've come to believe about many of us from our past, in our tribe, we've grown up in families where a lot of emotion, a lot of affection wasn't present. It was assumed. And we convinced ourselves. We knew that our parents loved us. They didn't abuse us or misuse us. They provided for us, and we knew it. But there was not a lot of expression of that. Some of you perhaps grew up in families where there was that kind of affection. God gave you and me as dads an example several times in Scripture. When he spoke audibly from heaven, and he said what? He said, this is my son. This is the son that I am so delighted in. This is the son that I am so proud of. Listen up, hear what he has to say. That's the model that God gave to you and me as dads. That's what he wants us to do with our children, our grandkids. He wants us as moms to do the same kind of thing. And yet the enemy, in the ways that he robs us, perhaps, of hearing that, we bring that right into our own families as normal, and so we don't say it. Some of us may have sort of gotten the idea or maybe even heard that you don't praise your children. You don't say those affirming, encouraging things because you don't want them getting proud or you don't want them getting the big head. And that's a lie from the enemy. Dads, it's never too late to give your sons, your daughters a big hug and tell them how much you love them and how much you're delighted. 
And it's time to close. Thanks so much for being here and for letting us share our story.